0: I hope that you all had a blessed and uh, joyful Christmas reflecting on the fact that Christ has come, born of flesh, our Savior and our King. Uh, If this is your first time with us this morning, welcome. My name is Chris Lejeune. I serve on staff here at Redeemer. Uh, And I hope you received a bulletin on your way in, if you are new. Uh, Please take a moment later on today to read through it. There's some uh, important information, some more information about Redeemer. Uh, And also, if this is your first time here, please fill out the visitor card on the back and either hand it to me at the end of the service or to one of the church members at the connection table on your way out. Uh, One announcement I do want to bring to your attention is in two weeks' time. So on the 10th of January, two weeks from today, we'll be starting a new round of Redeemer classes. These are our classes that take place uh, before the service from 9 a.m. to 9.50 a.m. And we'll be having two classes running simultaneously uh, at that time. One will be for the men and one will be for the women. That'll be an eight-week class. So it'll be taking place... Uh, one of the classes will be taking place here inside the, the ballroom and one will be just outside in the pre-function area. There'll be more information in your bulletin with regard to that next week. <clears throat> uh, as we approach God's Word now, let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we pray that You would strengthen our congregation now as we look at Your Word. May the truth of Your Word transform our hearts and minds and give us the grace, the protection, and everything we need to serve You faithfully in this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen we all have expectations, right? Or at least we're familiar with them. They come in various forms and various situations. We have expectations of the kind of person that we want to marry uh, or expectations of what we want to get out of a job. I'm sure there were plenty of expectations this past week as people were waiting to see what they would get for Christmas or what food they would be sharing over the holiday. But then, of course, there are Expectations that other people can actually have for us. So we think of parents who have a specific expectation of what, the, what they want their children to achieve and tend to put a lot of pressure on them to get to that. Or we ourselves may, put, uh, have, may have certain expectations of our spouse and what we want from them and what we expect from them and put a lot of pressure on them in that. And then there are times when we don't actually know what to expect. We can find ourselves... Uh, in a situation where we have no idea what the outcome is actually going to be. And this was very much the situation for God's people who were in exile in Babylon. They had been exiled as judgment for their rebellion towards God. 1 Chronicles reminds us that they had broken faith with God, the God of their fathers, and prostituted after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-pileser, king of Assyria, and he took them into exile. God's people had rejected him. They had given themselves up to the wicked ways of the land. And Isaiah begins to address this, and we see two parallel verses in chapter 41, where he exposes the futility of these idols. Each of these passages ends in a dramatic summons. So we see in verse 24 of chapter 41, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And again in verse 29, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Essentially, Isaiah is saying, look at these meaningless idols. Look at these pathetic idolaters. And at this point, God's people didn't know what to expect. They were being oppressed, they were suffering, and they weren't sure what their outcome was going to be. But as we come to the start of chapter 42, we see something different, a different tone compared to that of 41. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to Isaiah chapter 42, And we'll be looking at verses 1 to 9. You can also follow along on the screens. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. To help us consider this passage, we're going to be looking at three points from the text. And this will serve as our outline this morning. So the first point is, behold God's servant. And that's in verses 1 to 4. The second point, behold God's promise in verses 5 to 7. And thirdly, behold God's assurance. So behold God's servant, Behold God behold God's promise and behold God's assurance. Let's look at our first point, behold God's servant. Now, in contrast to the idols and idol worshipping nations, God presents his service, his servant as the only hope for the nations. And we get to we begin to get a description of the servant. He's not like the ruthless Cyrus who God used to conquer Babylon. God is far more specific in his description about his particular servant and seems to be far more involved in terms of his relationship with him. The first thing that stands out is that the servant will be upheld by God. He is God's chosen. And not only is he God's chosen, but God's soul delights in him. So much so that his spirit is upon him. I imagine that as people would have been listening to this prophecy and received their prophecy, their, their minds would have begun to conjure up this, this magnificent servant who was, who was coming. You know, someone who's, who's powerful, probably around six foot four, bulging muscles, the strength of Samson with the speed of Usain Bolt. And on top of that, has God's spirit upon him. After all, this isn't just anyone. This is the one who's going to bring justice to the nations who will restore God's people to their rightful place. The servant would have to be a leader of leaders. He would need to be simply unstoppable. As I was reading this, the image I kind of got was that of a bowling ball. You know when you go 10-pin bowling, and you manage to roll that perfect ball, and you manage to get the strike? For me, that's one out of every 50 balls rolled or something. But when that ball hits those pins... Nothing is left standing. The power of that ball smashes everything in its path. And I imagine that's the same kind of power people were expecting. Someone that was going to smash everyone in his path. A servant was not going to leave anything standing on his way to bringing about justice. But as we read on, that doesn't really seem to be the case. In fact, it appears to be quite the opposite. God's servants who are told will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. But hang on, then how exactly is he going to bring about justice if he's not going to use power? What about fire and brimstone? Now, have you ever noticed that as humans, we really seem to be in awe or incredible we get to really see you know be taken aback by people who have this perceived power you know we impress with the wrong strategies or the wrong remedies and we seem to be in awe of the people that appear to have that and we have this idea that the only way that peace can be brought about or justice can be instilled is by brute force And by someone getting their point across over someone else. That's not the case here. That's not what we're seeing. That's not what God says his servant is going to do. God's servant is not going to cry aloud. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The point that is being made here is that unlike the tyrannical ruler's who sought to destroy everything in their parts, who preyed upon the weak in their quest for for dominance, the Lord's servant will be different. Instead, he will defend the weak. He will bring comfort and justice to them. The mission that is before him will not see him come as an oppressor, which is very different to the previous servants that God has used before to bring forth his justice. And let's be honest, that's not what we'd expect from a powerful and mighty God. After all, this is the God who wiped out the world with the flood, who confused the language of the people of Babylon and scattered the people across the earth. But if his servant will be different from the rulers who've come before him, then what exactly should we expect? And how can we have any certainty that this will actually be accomplished? How would the people receiving this prophecy believe with any confidence confidence that what was being told to them would in fact happen? And that brings us to our next point. Behold God's promise. Look there in verse 5. Almost as if to address the question of how this can be so, we get a reminder of exactly who it is who is making this promise. Who is telling us of his servant. This is the Lord God. He is the one who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread them, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. I recently read on CNN an article about one of the the greatest discoveries of the Hubble Space Telescope the scientists at NASA who had been operating this telescope had noticed a specific dark point in in our galaxy. So they thought, well, hey, let's point the lens in that direction and let's see what happens. Who knows? So taking information gathered over about 10 years, they were able to piece together the most complete image ever taken of the galaxy. They referred to this as the extreme deep field, or XDF for short. And what they saw was simply astounding. As they pieced together the picture, as it all came into focus, they noticed not tens, not hundreds, but thousands of galaxies, both near and far, a total of about 5,500 individual galaxies, each with billions of stars. I don't know about you, but as I was reading that, I I just couldn't comprehend it. All those galaxies, all those stars, I mean, the expanse of space must be immense to be able to contain all of that. And yet, we are reminded here that God, the Lord, is the one who created the heavens and spread them out. This mighty God who created all of that is going to send His servant. And He is the same God that gave breath to the people on earth and spirit to those who walk in it, who gave life to each and every one of us here this morning. Friends, I hope that this reminder would comfort you and bring you a renewed joy in the fact that this God who created the heavens is the same God who is active in each of our lives right now. Up to this point, we are reminded that the one true God is a God of intention. And he's a God who gets involved. I wonder if you've noticed that in the verses we've looked at. Think about how many times God refers to himself doing something. Look back at verse 1. My servant whom I uphold, my chosen, my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. And then again in verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. This is not simply a God who sits on the sidelines and waits to see if you can figure things out for yourself. No, this is a God who is deliberate, who is specific and is very intentional. And it's not it's not just what we see in this passage. If you think about our lives, Each and every one of our lives. There is intent there. We mustn't for a moment think that any of us are here by coincidence. It's just chance that we're here in Dubai. There are no coincidences when it comes to God. No mistakes. God has brought each of us here for a reason. It may be to have the opportunity to share the good news with unreached people groups that you would never have had back home. Or it may be for God to draw you closer to himself and cause you to realize that you are a sinner in need of salvation. That was very much the case for me four and a half years ago when I arrived in Dubai. I didn't want anything to do with God. I came here to seek a name for myself. And yet, by his grace and his mercy, my eyes were opened to the fact that I am a sinner in need of salvation. Friends, whatever the reason may be, our hope as Redeemer Church, as the staff and leaders of the church, is that when you leave this place, you would love Christ so much more than when you first arrived. That you would rejoice in the way that God has been intentional in your life. As we come back to the passage, we see that it's not quite the end of it just there. We see that he continues to describe what will happen with his servants. His servant will be a covenant or a promise for a people, for his people, and a light to the nations. He will open the eyes that are blind, bringing the knowledge of God to them. Now, this does sound a little familiar. If we think back to the passage that Eric read for us earlier, told, told the passage told us that Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them. Not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The servant that Isaiah has been talking about is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the one who has opened the eyes of the blind. And not just physically. The reality is that each and every one of us are blind to our sin. And we sit in rebellion against God. We have rejected Him, told Him we don't need Him. And like the people in exile in Babylon, we have chosen idols ahead of God. And these come in many forms. Some of us maybe worship money because we want comfort. Or we maybe worship our jobs because we want power and recognition. We want status. Or maybe we worship people because we want to be liked and accepted. We fear being alienated. We put these and many other idols in place of God. And because of this, because of our rebellion and rejection, we stand condemned before Him. And by ourselves, we have no hope. But thankfully, as we've seen, God is not idle. He is a God of action. And in His mercy, He took it upon Himself to make a way for people to be reconciled to Him, a way for each and every one of us to be made right with Him. And that is in Jesus Christ, who was fully God, fully man, came to earth and lived a perfect life, a life that none of us can live. He followed God's law perfectly. It was without sin. Seemingly weak, he was crucified, gave, him up, gave himself up to death, sacrificed on our behalf, and on the third day rose again, conquering death, and is now seated at the right hand of God. So what does that mean for us? It means that because of what Christ accomplished, because of what he did on the cross, the fact that he atoned for our sin, or paid the penalty for our sins, we now have a way to God. And this is the task of God's servants. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Because God came to Jesus came to accomplish this. It's so how God has fulfilled what he has proclaimed. When he has opened our eyes and we turn from our sin, we repent and put our faith in Christ and what he has done. Apart from his finished work on the cross, we simply sit in the prison of darkness of our own sin. Our only hope is found in God's servant, the one who, has placed, who God has placed his spirit upon. All four gospel accounts in the New Testament point to the fact that Jesus has God's spirit upon him. They give witness to that account. We are told it came in the form of a dove and a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Christ accomplished the task given to him when on the cross he cried out, It is finished. Friends, if you are here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Christ, if this is all new to you, welcome. We are so delighted that you are here this morning. We would love to chat to you. Feel free to come and chat to me, chat to Frank, Eric, or Tom. We would love to chat to you more about the hope that we have in Christ. But I hope you would see, friends, that the people's most pressing need at this point was not justice of the nations, which is what they were expecting. There is something else. There is a far greater justice that needs to be met. And that is God's justice. The kind of justice that needs to be dealt with the way that dealt with for the way that each and every one of us have rejected Him. The way we have chosen to live our own lives. And the only place that is found is in Christ, in his perfect sacrificial death and resurrection. But what does that mean exactly, and how can we be sure that what Christ has done is enough? What hope, what certainty do we have? Certainty do we have, which brings us to our third point: behold, God's assurance. The passage ends off with a declaration and a promise. I wonder if you notice that. Look at verse eight: "I am the Lord; that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols." God must discredit all idols to receive his proper honor. Unlike other belief systems, God is not one of many gods. He is not superior among inferior gods. He is not even the best of all gods. No, he is the one and only God. We can have assurance of our salvation... Because God is so concerned with His honor and His glory. Nothing or no one will get in the way of that. How much should that encourage us? If God's glory is so important, will He not give everything to accomplish that? So much so that He gave His only Son to be sacrificed for us. But it's not just the fact that God desires his own glory that should bring us comfort and bring us assurance. It's because God God simply says so. Look there at verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The distinction that was made at the end of chapter 41 is still there. It remains. It is the Lord who predicts, directs, and fulfills. The promises that He has made in the past have come true, and we have seen that in the fulfillment of Christ. Let us not forget either that the same promises, the promises we see in the New Testament, will come to pass. Will come to pass. And the fact is that God has made it known. Therefore, we have no excuse. We cannot simply claim ignorance. As we conclude, there is one more thing that I want us to consider. And that is the response we see in verse 10. How did this news shape Isaiah's life? Who would have been in the middle of this, this exile with uh, God's people? Simple. He rejoiced. Despite what was going on around him, he rejoiced in a promise that was yet to be fulfilled. Friends, we have the the advantage of being able to look back and see how these promises have been fulfilled. How much more then should that cause us to praise God and rejoice in Him and trust in Him that He will fulfill what He says? It's particularly noteworthy that we see that the entire earth, with all its inhabitants, is enjoined to give this praise in a new song. It's surely caused by what immediately precedes it the message that we've just seen, the announcement of the servant who will bring forth God's justice to the earth. He's not like, he, was not like, he is not like the lifeless idols that people were giving their, their lives to. No, God's glory lies in the capacity to do everything that idols cannot. He alone can transcend the cosmos. He alone can explain the course of history. God working out his perfect plan of salvation before time began. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, I pray that you would see the reality is that apart from Jesus, you have no hope. As you've been sitting here this morning, I wonder what your view of God is. Is he just a a far-off deity who you can't expect much from? someone who's not really interested in your life? Or is he a God, as we've seen here, who is intentional, a God who is faithful in his promises? I wonder what your expectations were for coming to Dubai. Make some money, go back home, make a a name for yourself. Or maybe you came here expecting to find a better life, better than what you would have had back in your home country. Friends, you're not here by accident or by chance. God's perfect plan being worked out. There is intentionality in every aspect of your life. God working out all things for His glory. I made the statement at the beginning of the sermon that we all have expectations. And there can be times when we just don't know what to expect at all. One thing, however, is true that each and every one of us here can expect And that is the fact that we're all going to die. And we can all expect to go somewhere once it happens. If you continue to live a life of rebellion against God, choose to live for yourself rather than Him, choose to live in that dark prison of your sin, you can expect to be thrown into the lake of fire. And this is not just an idle threat. This is not just something I'm making up to try to scare you. This is the truth that we see from Scripture. Scripture. This is what happens to all those who have rejected God. Now I urge you, don't wait until it's too late. Repent. Put your faith and trust in what Christ has accomplished for you. Do it even now in your seat. Your only hope lies in Him. For those who have repented and put their faith and trust in Christ, what about us? What can we expect from this God who we've seen this morning? We can expect a God who will be glorified. A God who fulfills his promises. And last of all, we can expect the gift of eternal life. Being able to see him face to face and worshipping him. It has been promised to all those who rely on Christ. God's servant in whom it is finished. In Christ alone our hope is found. Let's pray. Lord God, what a reminder that you are not a passive God. You are indeed a God of action, a God who fulfills his promises, whose glory is his and his alone. Father, I pray that as we reflect on these truths today, we would take comfort not only in what you say you will do, but in what you have done ultimately through Christ, through his sacrificial death and resurrection. Lord, may our hope be found not in ourselves, but in what he has done. And may you be the one who receives all the glory.